going to be in Matthew 5 and verse 4 today. Well, the Christian life is a life filled with joy. It's also a life filled with mourning. Listen to how D. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it. He says, The man who is truly Christian is a man who mourns also because of the sins of others. He does not stop at himself. He sees the same thing in others. He is concerned about the state of society and the state of the world. As he reads the newspaper, he does not stop at what he sees with simply expressed disgust at it. He mourns because of it. Because men can so spend their lives in this world, he mourns because of the sins of others. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees the moral muddle and the unhappiness and suffering of mankind and reads of wars and rumors of wars. He sees that the whole world is in an unhealthy and an unhappy condition. He knows it is all due to sin and he mourns because of it. Why do we mourn in this way and what does that mourning look like? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Matthew 5 and 4. It's page 736 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm just going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5 and 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The title of the message is, Blessed are those who mourn. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, today we come before You with a desire to be more like Jesus. We've come in Your house, in Your name. We've gathered to to study Your Word in this time, and we need Your Spirit to come to open our hearts and to open our minds that we could receive from You what You have for us today. Lord, as we look at the world, it's very clear that the world is broken. It's very clear that things are not the way that they ought to be or the way that You intended them to be, and it's easy for us, Lord, to be angry, to be disgusted by it, Lord, but not to truly mourn, not to mourn over our sin, not to mourn over other sin, not to mourn over all that's wrong in the world around us today. But Lord, we know that what you have for us, what you desire for us, is to be a people with tender hearts. Lord, tender with about our sin, the sins of others, and the effects of sin in our world. So today as we look at your word, speak to us about this. Open our hearts to understand this and help us, Lord, to take it to our lives. And let us be a people who mourn so that we can experience the comfort that comes from you. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at the Beatitudes, it's important to recognize how they're interconnected. Right? Those that come to place, they understand the seriousness of their sin and become poor in spirit, they mourn. Right? First they mourn for their own sin, then they mourn for the sin of others, and then they just mourn over the general brokenness of the world around them. Now the word that's translated as mourn, it is the strongest possible word that could be used for mourning. It is like the deep mourning and wailing that occurs when a loved one dies. It is a deep and a desperate and a helpless sorrow. And in this case, it comes not because of tragedy, but because we recognize the devastation sin brings into the world. Now the key thought from this is that believers are blessed as they mourn their sin, the sin of others, and the brokenness of the world around them. Now, I know that's not a, a snazzy way to say it, but it is accurately represents what Jesus is getting across to us in this passage and what it means for us to mourn. Now, before we get into the specifics of what it is to mourn for our sin and other sin and the sin and the brokenness of the world, I want us to, to think for a second about why. Why does Jesus expect and thus bless, bless, bless us 
when we mourn, mourn for our sin, the sin of others, and the brokenness of the world. And I thought about that this week. And to me, I think the, the, the answer could be summed up in the word maturity. But one of the main differences between those who are emotionally immature and those who are emotionally mature is selfishness or selflessness. Emotionally immature people are always selfish. Right? They primarily care about themselves. The most important factors in any decision is what they want or they don't want to do. How does their decision affect others? Who cares? you got to take care of yourself first. Do what you want first of all. You're number one and the only one that really matters. It's very similar in a spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity. Spiritually immature people don't mourn over their sin because they should be able to do whatever they want without being able or without being made to feel bad about it. Spiritually immature people don't mourn over the sins of others because they don't care about what's going on in other people's lives. Spiritually immature people don't mourn over the brokenness of the world unless that brokenness affects them personally. Otherwise, it's just sort of a meh attitude toward it all. But Jesus expects those of us who follow him to grow beyond this. Jesus expects his followers to live for something more than I'm going to do what I want to do. Jesus expects his followers to care about what goes on in the lives of other people. He expects his followers to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn, whether or not these things affect us personally. With that said, let's look at the three aspects of this beatitude. First, there is the mourning for my sin. And as I said earlier, the word that's translated as mourn is the strongest possible word. It is like the deep mourning and wailing that occurs when a loved one passes. It is the deep and desperate, helpless sorrow. And in this case, it comes not because of tragedy, but because we recognize the devastation that sin brings into the world because of we recognize the severity and the desperate nature of our own sin. Now, probably the best example of someone who embraced this attitude is the Apostle Paul. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Um, We're going to start in verse 15. It's page 862 if you have a pew Bible. Familiar passage. Here's what Paul says. Romans 7 and 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I, I will to do, what I want to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate... That I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. Now part of what I like about this passage. Is just the brutal honesty of Paul's struggle. Right. He doesn't try to sugarcoat what's going on. He doesn't try to sugarcoat 
anything that's happening in his life. He doesn't try to minimize the severity of his sin or his struggle with sin. He, he doesn't let pride cause him to act as though he doesn't struggle when he does. I also like that Paul doesn't try to shirk his responsibility. He doesn't blame his parents on the way that he was raised. He doesn't explain that there were people that were mean to him in junior high and it affected him and so now he acts in this way. No, it, it is, this is his fault. He understands that. He understands that what he is doing is him. But notice his attitude for it in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, who will deliver me from this body of death. But Paul doesn't minimize it. Paul hates the sin that he struggles with. He he desperately and desire, desires to change. He is broken over his sin. He is mourning over the sin in his own life. Right? This is a picture of the attitude that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 and 4. That we we mourn over our own sin. I heard someone say once that one of the main differences between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't in how much they sin, but in their attitude toward that sin when they're confronted by the Holy Spirit. Right? The unbeliever takes the side of their sin against the Holy Spirit's conviction. And what that means is that when an unbeliever is convicted of their sin, they begin to explain why their sin is okay. They begin to minimize their sin. They begin to explain why the world's different now. Things have changed. Why their sin isn't as bad as someone else's sin. They take the side of their sin. My sin is okay. And they push back against what the Holy Spirit is trying to do and bring them to repentance. The believer, on the other hand, takes the side of the Holy Spirit against their sin. When a believer is convicted of his or her sin, he acknowledges, yes, I have sinned. Yes, my sin is serious. Yes, my sin bothers me. It breaks my heart. And then that conviction leads them to confess it to the Lord, to seek His forgiveness. Right? Rather than being defiant about their sin, the believer mourns their sin. They take God's side against their sin. And that's exactly what Paul did in verse 24. And that is exactly what believers are meant to do in our day. But we, we are meant to mourn that sin. Not become defiant. Not become rebellious. Not to minimize. Not to justify. Not to explain. Just acknowledge and understand that our sin is serious. And our sin is against God. But why do we respond in this way? Because that's very, well, it's very unnatural. Our culture at large responds defiantly when we're accused of anything. Even if we're guilty. We respond defiantly. We begin to deflect. Well, what about them? You didn't say that to them. You didn't talk about them. Why do believers respond in this way about sin? Now, for most of my life, my idea of this was that we responded in this way because we feared the judgment of God. And I don't want to say it's not at least part of it. But, but I don't think as believers it should be the main part of the reason we respond the way that we do to the Holy Spirit's conviction. The reason we respond the way that we do over our sin. I think as believers we should mourn our sin more because of love of God than for fear of judgment. I mean, how many of you as, as a husband or as a wife have sinned against your spouse? 
Right? You have said or done something that hurt their feelings or made them mad. Right? Hopefully you feel bad about those things. But if so, why? I know for me, I have done lots of things to Kelly that would qualify as sinning against her. And I mourn those times that I have and the times that I do. But I don't mourn them because I'm afraid she's going to kill me in my sleep or go and file for divorce every time I say or do something that she doesn't like or hurts her feelings. I mourn because I love her. And I don't want to hurt her feelings. I mourn because I love our relationship and I don't want to do anything that would hinder my relationship with my wife. It should be something similar in our relationship with God. I love this verse. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, walk in darkness is clearly a picture of unrepentant sin. So according to Scripture, can we live in sin and in a close relationship with God at the same time? No. No, we cannot. Not only no, but according to Scripture, if we say that we are, we are lying. And the truth is not in us. Right? We are, at the very least, we are lying to ourselves. At the very most, we are lying to others. Now, I've had people living in Clear, unrepentant sin. Tell me I'm closer to God than I've ever been in my life. According to Scripture, that is just not possible. See, this is why the believer mourns their sin. This is what bothers us about our sin. This is why there is a deep mourning and wailing. Not because we're afraid God is going to cast us into hell. Not because we're afraid God is going to break our leg or burn down our house. But because we have hindered our relationship with Him. We have broken our fellowship with Him. We have taken a path that He is not going to go. And we are no longer walking with the Lord. And that breach in our relationship with God, that is what produces mourning and repentance in us. For the believer, it should be the goodness of God and not the wrath of God that brings us to repentance. Do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? A thought that should enter our mind once we have sinned is how good God has been to us and all the ways that He has blessed us in our lives. And that we have, in the words of Paul, despised the riches of that goodness and rebelled and sinned against Him should break our hearts. It should lead us to mourn. Not because we were seen publicly and will be embarrassed. Not because we're afraid God is going to punish us in some way. But we have sinned against the lover of our souls. That one has been so good to us and has done so much for us. And yet through our sin we have despised His goodness and rejected His rule over our lives. It is the goodness of God that should lead the believer to mourn for their sin. As we grow the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, there should be a a maturity that says, I Mourn my sin 
because of the damage it does to my relationship with God. Secondly, we, we mourn the sin of others. Now, mourning the sin of others is not something that most people do, unless that sin affects us personally. Uh, human nature is such that we are naturally content to focus on me and mine. An inward focus is the natural focus for human beings. However, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to have an unnatural focus. Right, a part of this unnatural focus, we are called to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Right, and we are to consider anyone in need our neighbor. With this unnatural focus, we are also expected to look beyond ourselves and what's going on in our lives and look to see what's going on in the lives of others. And a part of what this means is that we will begin to mourn for the sins of others as well as mourn for our own sin. As indispensable as mourning for your own sin is in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, our responsibility does not end there. We are expected to mourn for the sins of others. And there are two great New Testament examples of this. One is the Apostle Paul who said, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Great sorrow, continual grief over the lostness of his fellow Jews. The sorrow and the grief that he felt, the thought of his Jewish brethren dying apart from Christ was like a great weight that pressed down on him. And it wasn't a fleeting feeling. It was something that was with him constantly. The message paraphrase transla translates this by saying that it was an enormous pain. And it was deep. And that Paul was never free from it. But that's the, the burden, the mourning that Paul felt over the sin, the rebellion of his unbelieving Jewish people. And then there's Jesus. It says when Jesus drew near the city drew to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he, he wept over it. And he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, the Greek word that's used for wept, it carried with it the idea of bursting out into tears. Right? So this isn't Jesus walking up to the city, seeing it in a tear trickling down his cheek. Instead, it's the picture of Jesus walking up and seeing the city and bursting out into near uncontrollable sobs as he looks at the city. Their sin, their rebellion against Him. Now here are some things that are interesting about both Paul and Jesus and the people that they mourned over. First, the people that they mourned over basically hated them. But the Jews that rejected Jesus called Paul a false prophet and a liar. They actively opposed Him wherever He went. They had him arrested on trumped-up charges. They arraigned for him to be beaten on multiple occasions. They had actively plotted to have him murdered on more than one occasion. And they often followed him from city to city, stirring up trouble against him. And, and stirring up trouble not just like going into the churches where he was preaching and shouting and trying to overshadow him, which is kind of what they did, but they also went into the, the marketplace, it says, and found the, the rabble. Right, So found the dregs of humanity, those that, would, that could be paid to stir up trouble and paid them to go and cause trouble against the Apostle Paul. And yet those are the people. Paul has a brokenness over their salvation that Paul mourns their sin. Now the Jews who rejected Jesus, 
also called him a false teacher. They also called him a liar. At one point, they accused him of being demon-possessed and doing miracles to the power of Satan. They actively opposed him wherever he went. Once he went into a city, they would he went into this city, they would have him arrested. He would be arrested on trumped-up charges, and they would have him crucified. Now keep in mind, he knew all of this. When he went into Jerusalem, he knew the outcome. As he looked down at that city and wept over their sin, he knew that within a few days' time, those people would be calling out for his crucifixion and would mock him as he hung on the cross and died. So what does this teach us about whose sins we should mourn? Should we mourn the sins of our family and friends, those that we know and love? Yes, absolutely. Should we mourn the sins of our lost neighbor whose dog wakes us up barking at three in the morning? Yes, absolutely. Should we mourn the sins of the co-worker who gossips about us and generally makes our day hard? Yes, absolutely. Should we mourn the sins of the person who may or may not have entered this country legally? Yes, absolutely. Should we mourn the sins of the person that belongs to that political party? Yes, Absolutely. Should we mourn the sins of the person? And no matter how we finish that sentence, the answer is yes. Absolutely. Second thing we learn is that Paul and Jesus mourned the sins of others because they knew what awaited those people in eternity. Paul would go on to say that his burden for his people was so deep that if it were possible, he would be willing to take on their damnation so that they could have his salvation. Paul understood that those people who rejected Jesus, that it wasn't just that they were missing out on peace and joy in this life. They were going to go into a crisis eternity. They were going to hell. And his heart was broken over that. Jesus goes on to say that they had missed out on all that God wanted to do in them, through them, and for them. He'll, he'll go on to say that judgment is coming and will fall upon them because they have rejected him. So why do we mourn the sins of others? Well, because we know that they are missing out on all that God would do in them, through them, and for them right now. They are missing out on joy, peace, blessing, the presence of God in their lives. They are missing out on all of the good that comes from knowing and loving and experiencing Jesus here. But we also know this life is not the end. We mourn their sins because... At death, everyone enters into eternity. Some go to heaven and some go to hell. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we know those who reject Jesus and continue in their sin, hell will be their eternal home. And the thought of that should horrify us. It should bother us. It should cause us to mourn their sin. Because we know, we know what awaits them. As believers in Jesus Christ, we, we should deeply mourn our own sin. But a part of maturing as a believer in Jesus Christ is moving beyond just me and mine to others. And I mourn the sins of others. And then finally, mourn my sin, mourn the sin of others. And mourn the brokenness of our world. The fact that our world is broken shouldn't be news to anyone. 
Every day we see new ways that testify to us about the brokenness of our world. Listen to a, the words from a devotion I'm reading on the Version Bible app. It says, we live in a world where violence done by people against people is so common. There's not enough time on the news to talk about it. These days, a murderous rampage has to be spectacular in some way or extremely close to home to get coverage on the air. Children are abducted, raped, murdered, and then dropped into dumpsters. Pregnant women are gunned down while entering the door. Terrorists line up prisoners to decapitate them for the camera or burn them alive in cages. Illegal drag races force drivers off the road, leaving beloved innocents dead or paralyzed. Drug captains have honest judges assassinated in front of their children. World leaders are deposed for corruption and murder or worse. They're not deposed. And those are just the news stories I happen to read on the day that I wrote this. Never mind our epidemics of war crimes, genocide, ethnic violence, injustice, child abuse, cronyism, graft, fraud, divorce, drug use, homelessness, dehumanization, elder abuse, and abortion. Just to name a few. And that's, that's our world. Today we're going to go home and if we look at the news, there's going to be all kinds of horrible things that are going to be reported. Some are going to be so horrible that they're going to be national news and they'll take precedence for a couple of days. But some, even though they're horrible, like Alan Platt says, they're not going to be horrible enough to capture anybody's attention. And so they'll be reported and passed off quickly as though they never happened at all. And yet when you read Scripture, you find that this was not God's plan for the world that He created. Genesis 1 and 31, we're told that God looked at His world and it was good. And behold, it was indeed very good. And yet as we look around us, we know that the world is not very good. When sin entered the world, it broke everything. Sin brought with it death, destruction, famine, war, disease, natural disasters, and every other bad thing that happens in our world. All of this breaks God's heart. And it should break ours as well. We should mourn the brokenness of our world. I want to show you one example of this from the life of Jesus. Turn to John chapter 11, page 820. John 11 verses 1 through 44 details the story of, of Lazarus. It's not a, it's a very familiar story. We don't have time to get into all the details. I just want to hit some high points this morning and, and show some specific truths related to mourning the brokenness in our world. John 11 and 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. Right, so there's the story. A man named Lazarus is sick, and it's serious. It's, he's sick nigh unto death is really where it's at. It's a severe thing. The sisters are concerned about him. And you get the idea that what they, they're telling Jesus this, not just to inform him and keep him up on current events, but to me the implied part is you should come and heal him. Right? You, you are able. Come and, and make him better. Despite what seems to be an urgent message from these sisters, Jesus does not hurry. He stays two more days where he's at before heading to Bethany. And then he walks a couple of days journey to Bethany 
And when he arrives, Lazarus is already dead. But he's not freshly dead. He's been dead for four days. So he's been dead. He's been buried. And when Jesus walks into the house or walks into the place where they are, there's there's a big commotion and an uproar. It's important for us to understand that in this day when someone died, it was a big thing. I mean, funerals today are big things, but not like they were in Jewish culture. When someone died, the mourning went on often for a week or more. And they stayed at the house, and they would even at times, they hired mourners. But the more, the kind of the idea was that the more people would holler and weep and wail at the death, the more important the person seemed to the world around them. And so the people stayed, and they just cried and yelled and hollered and mourned loudly uh, for a week or so. So when Jesus walks up four days later, there's still all of these people there mourning the death of Lazarus. As Jesus walks up, he meets Martha and they have the conversation in which he says, I am the resurrection, the life. Do you believe this? She says, yes. And it goes on and he goes out and he's we know from the story he's going out to where Lazarus is buried so that he can raise him. But it says in verse 35, Jesus wept. So let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus weep? I'm going to say something that I don't know that you're going to agree with, but if you'll let me explain, I think you will. Jesus did not weep because he was sad at Lazarus' death. Look at verse 14 and 15. One, Jesus already knew that Lazarus was dead. Verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He didn't walk into a surprise, he knew it. But look at what he was going to do. And I'm glad for your sakes I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And he going on and what he's going to do is he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows. I mean, he already knew what he was going to do. So there, there's no real point in being sad that Lazarus is dead when one, you've known about it all along. And two, you're, you're minutes away from calling him to get up out of the grave and to walk out of the tomb. So why did Jesus weep? I believe it was because of the brokenness of the world, the the situation. Here are people that he does care about. Lazarus, the one whom you loved, he cared about these people. He had a relationship with them. And they're weeping and they're hurt. And they have watched Lazarus get a disease of some sort and waste away and die. Now they don't know what's going on. They don't know what Jesus is going to do. But they are mourning. They are weeping. And as Jesus looks at this crowd of people who are broken over the death of a loved one, and he thinks about the sin that brought this disease and led to this death, I believe Jesus is weeping here because of the brokenness that this situation, it is just a testimony of how far, how different things are than the way God intended it to be. Sickness, death, and mourning, they were not a part. Of God's plan for our world. Sin brought all of those things in. And Jesus is weeping at how broken the world is. To produce sickness, death, and mourning. Now look at verse 33. Therefore when Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who came with her weeping. He he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. Now jump down to verse 38. Then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. I listened to a sermon last year where the guy explained that the word that the New King James translates as groan or groaning. 
is a much stronger word than groan. But it carries with it the idea of being indignant, angry, or outraged. So why is Jesus indignant, angry, or outraged? He's indignant, angry, and outraged at how broken the world is to produce sickness, death, and mourning. But Jesus doesn't look at it and just say that's the way the world is. He, he looks at it and he says this is not the way it was meant to be. The, the, the brokenness of the world bothered him. He was outraged. He was indignant by it all. As disciples in Jesus, we should feel about the brokenness of the world in a similar way to Jesus did. We should weep over the brokenness of our world. We should be indignant and outraged because we know that this is not what God intended. That there again, there, yes, we, we mourn our sin. But a part of growing up in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ is that we care so much for others that when we just hear about the, the brokenness of the world around us, our hearts are bothered by that. I mean, our community. We should look around at the brokenness in our community and be bothered. When we read the news stories today, we should be bothered. Our hearts should ache. The wickedness, the sickness, the death, the mourning, the hurt that exists and seems to triumph in our world. And I want us to quickly, I want to point out how important this is. Because it's easy enough to say, well, oh, that's, I mean, I don't have time for that or anything like that. Just act like this isn't that big of a deal. Mourning for the sins of our culture and the brokenness of the world. But turn with me to Ezekiel 9. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because we just don't have time. This was a part of my daily Bible reading last Saturday. And it went great with this message, I thought. It says, Then he, God, called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hands. So he's talking for the angels to draw near, and he's about to bring judgment to the city. Suddenly six men... From the direction of the upper gate, which faces the north, each with a, a battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a rider's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the, of, of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been. Threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen. And he had a rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. To all the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone with whom the mark, with whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple. Fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and they killed in the city. Now, just a quick, two quick questions. Who was marked to be spared? 
those who sighed and cried over the abominations that were done in the city. Those who mourned the sin of others, the brokenness of their culture, and their rebellion against God. What happened to the others? Apparently angels with battle axes killed them. I mean, that's a pretty rough picture. Down to the point of defile the temple. They're in the temple wherever they are. Kill them all. Now, I don't think this... I can take this and teach that those who don't mourn for sin and the sin of others and the broken of the world will be killed by an angel with a battle axe. But I do think that this shows us what God expects from those of us who are His children. God fully expected that His people would look at Jerusalem and see those who were sinning and it would break their hearts. And they would sigh and they would cry and they would intercede. And those people that did, He spared this judgment. And those that He didn't, they faced the judgment. Again, I'm not going to say that you'll face judgment if you don't mourn in this way. But I am going to say that this is absolutely what God expects from those of us who are His children. Now the promise associated with blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. How are we comforted? Well, when we mourn for our sin, we experience the comfort of forgiveness. John said if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we mourn our sin, we repent, we confess it, and we'll experience this comfort of forgiveness. And and this is true, whether it's an immediate thing or whether we've strayed a long ways from the Lord. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Once the prodigal son came to himself and repented of what he had done, went back to the Father, remember he was fully restored and received. But when we mourn our sin, it's just a natural thing to repent, confess, And we experience the greatness and the goodness of God's forgiveness. A second way that we're comforted when we mourn the sin of others is that we experience the comfort of of salvation. And this is a a passage that is linked in my Bible to uh, Matthew 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth bearing, he goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, of course, the, the Bible in Mark 4 and other places, uh, Matthew 13, Jesus refers to the word as seed. So the picture that we can take from this is that when we bear the seed, we share the gospel with tears, with burden, with mourning over the loss of someone, their, their lostness, their sin, that, that there will come a time where we get to rejoice at their salvation. I do want to be careful here, though, because I can't overpromise, right? I can't completely guarantee that mourning the sins of another will lead to their salvation. But what I will say is that if we truly mourn the sin of others, we will do what is necessary to help them come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We'll pray for their salvation. We'll weep for their salvation. We'll have an uncomfortable conversation with them that we hope will produce their salvation. 
We'll do all that we can, all the hard work necessary to make sure they hear the gospel and are given an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And the more of that we do, the more likely we are to get to do the hallelujah work of seeing them come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But that being said, people do make their own choices. And they may reject Jesus no matter what and die without receiving Him. However, there's still a comfort there. There is a comfort in knowing that we did all that we could. We don't have to wonder what if. What if I'd prayed more? What if I'd fasted more? What if I'd been courageous and shared the gospel with him? What if I'd had that uncomfortable conversation? We won't be left wondering. Because we'll know that we have done all that we could. I I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Sinners be damned. At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. When we mourn the sins of others, we'll do all of these things like Spurgeon said. And there will be a comfort in knowing that we had done all that we could. To help them come to know Christ and spare them from the judgment to come. And then finally we experience the, par- we experience the comfort of paradise re- uh, restored. We don't have time to look at those passages. Passages like Isaiah 35, Revelation 21 tell us that there is a day coming. When all that's gone wrong, it will be set aright. And disciples of Jesus, we will get to see that day. We'll see deserts flow with streams. We'll see famine, disease, and death done away with. We'll see the dead raised. And we'll see that there will no be no more death, nor sorrow, nor parting. We'll see God's kingdom fully come and His will be done as it was always intended on it to be. And it'll be a comfort in that day. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we want the comfort of our personal forgiveness, we must mourn our sin. If we want the comfort of seeing the salvation of others, we must mourn their sin and do all that we can to reach them. And really for heaven to be as great as it's supposed to be, we have to mourn the brokenness of this world. This is what God expects. This is what God intends for us to be like. People whose hearts are broken and concerned about what's going on in the world around us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and take some time to respond to what the Spirit of God and the Word of God have said to us today. The Holy Spirit has shown you this morning how serious your sin is and you need the grace and the mercy that Jesus offers. You let that conviction drive you to the cross and you find that grace and mercy you so desperately need. Cry out for your heart to be tender so that your sin always bothers you. If you're here today and you're worried, about the salvation of someone you care about, you take this time and you pray for them. 
you ask God to open their eyes to the seriousness of their sin and their very real need for Jesus Christ. And spend this time praying and asking God to let your heart be burdened over the, just the general brokenness of our world. Let's take time and pray.